If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Franklin Delano Roosevelt assumed the presidency of the United States in 1933, becoming the head of a nation facing immense hardship and disenchantment amid the Great Depression. No president, excepting Abraham Lincoln, had come to office in more challenging circumstances. That's the take of Ewan Morgan, Emeritus Professor of US Studies at UCL. Ewan's the author of a new book on the 32nd president, which explores how Roosevelt's four terms in the White House changed the role from that of a chief clerk to an assertive presence on the world stage. He spoke to Eleanor Evans. Ewan, thank you so much for joining us on the History Extra podcast today. Pleasure to be here. And I hope to start with, as you do in your book, can you give us a sense of FDR? What was his route to the presidency? Well, FDR came from uh, a very old, established, very wealthy, but not fabulously wealthy family, lived in uh, a very uh, posh estate in uh, near Hyde Park uh, in New York. He was the uh, cousin of uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who became president. And life was very good to FDR. He had uh, homeschooled tutors as a child, uh, then went to uh, one of the best public schools in the country, then to Harvard. And uh, his uh, life and career somewhat stalled. The most important part of his life in the early uh, uh, 20th century was his marriage uh, to Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, a distant cousin also related to Teddy Roosevelt in uh, 1905. And uh, FDR initially went into the law. His heart wasn't in it, but he always wanted to emulate his kinsman, Theodore Roosevelt, and rise to become president of the United States. He enters politics in uh, 1910, a very good year for the Democrats. The Republicans are split. And uh, Roosevelt, FDR, as he is increasingly known, uh, wins a what was thought to be a safe Republican seat in his uh, local area around Hyde Park for the New York State Assembly. He serves a term and then backs Woodrow Wilson's ca- candidate for the Democratic nomination. Wilson is successful, and lo and behold, FDR is offered uh, the post of Assistant Secretary to the Navy, and he has an incredibly important job in preparing the American Navy uh, for uh, possible involvement in the Great War after it breaks out in 1914, and certainly to strengthen national defences in case of attack. He is so successful in that job and becomes so well-known, plus the Roosevelt name, that in 1920 he is brought on as vice presidential uh, running mate to um, the uh, Democratic nominee, Governor Cox of Ohio. 
It's a very bad year for the Democrats. Um, uh, the country wants uh, normalcy after the disruptions of uh, the Great War, and the Democrats go down to a catastrophic defeat at the hands of the Republicans. But uh, FDR is considered to have had a good campaign. He's seen as a coming man, and it seems that nothing can stop him from becoming president one day. And then in 1921, he suffers a devastating blow when he contracts polio, usually a disease that affects children. But it was a very severe case in FDR's case, and uh, he loses the use of his legs. From this time on, he will spend his life in a wheelchair. But he doesn't let on how disabled he is. Over a course of several years, he builds up his body through uh, weights and exercises to the point that he can appear to be walking short distances with a cane in one hand and balancing on the hand of a necessarily strong companion on the other. And in that, uh, given that uh, he determined to get back into politics, he never loses his ambition for the presidency. In fact, I would argue that uh, his ambition intensifies because he is so determined to prove uh, that the disability will not limit him. And he comes back into politics in 1928 uh, when uh, Alfred E. Smith becomes uh, the Democratic nominee and Smith effectively cajoles FDR into running for the governorship of New York in the hope that he will help carry, that he will help Smith carry the Empire State. Smith loses. Uh, he's the first Catholic Democratic Party candidate, and that does not play well with the party's largely Protestant base. But Roosevelt uh, ekes out a very narrow victory in uh, New York's uh, state by fewer than uh, 25,000 votes. But he is now uh, the governor of the most important state in the Union, the largest state in the Union. And before long, the Great Depression hits and he becomes one of the governors who takes a lead in uh, devising state solutions to the unemployment problem. So he attracts a great deal of attention nationwide. Of course, none of these um, solutions work because states simply do not have the resources to deal with the mass unemployment, the unprecedented mass unemployment. That nevertheless, FDR is seen now as the most likely candidate for the Democratic nomination in 1932, when he runs against an incumbent president, uh, Herbert Hoover. And in that election, he inflicts a landslide defeat on Herbert Hoover to become the 32nd president of the United States. So that's a good sense then of the Amer the situation in America when he comes to the presidency. Could you also give us a sense of the the, pre the role of president itself? What was that at the time that Roosevelt comes to power in 1933? 
for much of the 19th century, the president was more a chief clerk than a chief executive. Uh, Congress was where the power really lay. Uh, if you look at the American Constitution, Article 1 deals with the powers of Congress, and they're very specific and numerous. Article 2 deals with the powers of the presidency, and they're largely vague other than to declare that the president is commander-in-chief. That's the main responsibility. And it's no surprise that in the uh, uh, 19th century, the handful of strong presidents tended, not always, but tended to be president at time of war. Now, as we get into the 20th century, the president begins to grow in influence, partly because there are now national problems pertaining to social conditions and deprivation of urbanization, industrialization, poverty, and uh, workers' rights. And the president becomes an increasingly important player. We have two presidents in the early 20th century, Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, who lay the foundations of what uh, historians would call the modern presidency. Um, there's a regression in the 1920s. We have three Republican presidents who don't match up to the activism of Theodore Roosevelt and uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, they are more active than the 19th century presidents, but they don't build on those foundations. Franklin D. Roosevelt is convinced that the presidency should be the centre of American government. And the Great Depression gives him his opportunity. When he comes to power, 25% of the workforce at a very minimum is unemployed. We have no idea how many are working on shortened hours and uh, reduced wages of those who actually keep their jobs. Investment is down an incredible 98%. The farm economy is devastated and the banks, uh, the banking system is on the verge of meltdown. No president has succeeded uh, in more challenging circumstances to the White House than Abraham Lincoln. I would say only Abraham Lincoln uh, really had as tough a task uh, as uh, FDR. Um, Lincoln's, of course, was uh, to face Southern secession and civil war. Now, the Congress is desperate for action. Congress is, is largely a debating body. Uh, it's very difficult for the legislature to operate as a coherent unit, fast-moving unit. And in these circumstances, uh, the Democrats, who have a huge majority in Congress, are willing to defer to the leadership of Franklin D. Roosevelt, who has the vision and the will uh, to operate a strong presidency. Now, many historians say that FDR improvised what became known as the New Deal, his uh, reform program of his first two terms in office. Uh, I am personally of the view that if you study FDR's campaign speeches in 1932, and if you study some of his writings, he actually published a book 
uh, in the first week of his presidency called Looking Forward. He'd also written magazine articles during the interregnum between his election and his uh, uh, inauguration. And what the outlines of the New Deal are clear. Yes, Roosevelt will improvise, uh, but he knows ultimately where he wants to go. And the watchword for the Roosevelt New Deal, as it became known, is security. That is the one word that holds the essence of Roosevelt's domestic reforms. And what he meant by security was that he he believed that unless ordinary Americans had the economic security of a, a, a job, decent housing, reasonable health care and decent education, uh, then their personal liberties were being violated. He makes a connection between economic security and personal liberty, which is very important. And although the first stage of the New Deal, the hundred, the so-called 100 Days of 1933, focuses on getting the banks getting business and getting farmers uh, onto their feet after the collapse of uh, 1929 to 1933. In 1935, when he is in his third year in office, he shifts focus to a more bottom-up approach. And this is the New Deal as a great reform program uh, where he uh, enacts or he promotes the enactment of social security legislation, uh, effectively the corner state of uh, the cornerstone of something America has never had before, a permanent national welfare state. Uh, He promotes legislation to grant trade unions uh, collective bargaining rights, which is very, very important in propping up uh, uh, standards of living among the working class. Although I should say that uh, uh, most Americans never joined a union. Uh, The unions were largely the collective bargaining agents of, let's use the term, the upper working class rather than the poor. But it was an incredibly important reform. And there were others uh, controlling the utilities companies. It's quite interesting that now we're in a situation that people are talking about a windfall tax uh, because of high energy uh, costs in the UK and elsewhere. Well, FDR was very concerned that the utility companies in the United States were, in effect, monopolies that gouged consumers with uh, unfair high charges and uh, he enacts, promotes legislation to uh, ban what were called holding companies whereby companies far removed from the actual corporation which was delivering the the energy were, were controlling things and boosting profits unfairly and FDR puts an end to that, the New Deal puts an end to that. Uh, And, of course, there are major banking reforms to prop up a system where people's bank deposits were very vulnerable in banks which did not really meet uh, national banking standards. 
So you mentioned there a number of ways, you know, the, a number of the um, reforms that he's promoting. Now, your book explores a number of ways in which he transformed the presidency. That's the central argument of your book. I wonder if we can pick up on the, the communication particularly, because he, he did come about a way of new way of communicating alongside all of these reforms, didn't he? Yes, uh, that is critically important to FDR. Uh, he realizes that this is a country where the Republicans largely control the press. And we have uh, a, um, a press uh, which there are some pretty right-wing demagogues in control of the press, uh, most obviously, but uh, not exclusively, William Randolph Hearst, of course, of Citizen Kane fame. Uh, and FDR knows that one of the challenges he will face as president is to get his message out to the country, unfiltered by hostile editorial comment in the uh, newspaper empires of these conservative moguls. He exaggerates the extent of press uh, opposition to him. Uh, there were some newspaper publishers, uh, Marshall Field in uh, Chicago, uh, David Stern in Philadelphia, for example, who were very pro-New Deal. But by and large, the big press barons as a group were against him and they owned a lot of the media. So he develops a multi-pronged strategy to achieve this. Uh, the first is that he begins holding regular press conferences. Now, we take presidential press conferences today for granted. Um, in those days, presidential press conferences were, yeah, they'd been held by uh, presidents from Theodore Roosevelt onwards, but they were never twice a week as Roosevelt uh, racked them up. And it's certainly in the 1920s, the presidents of the 1920s would not answer press questions unless they had the written questions to hand first. FDR comes in and he says, ask me any question you want. No need to put it down on paper. I will, del I will try and answer it. Now, this, of course, is manna from heaven to the, to the reporters. My goodness me, somebody is going to give us copy. And they loved FDR for it. Uh, you know, here was a man who they could rely on, uh, not to parrot stale, uh, hackneyed sentences, but to give them something. Uh, FDR, of course, uh, was quite capable of, uh, uh, shall we say, not answering the question that had been set. Uh, he was also capable of being ambiguous. And I have to say, once or twice, he downright lied. But by and large, the, the press really, really liked him. Uh, compared particularly to his predecessor, Herbert Hoover, this man was the fount of national news. And uh, so that was the first thing. And because they liked him so much, even the reporters who worked for anti-FDR papers would give pro-FDR reports in their, in their copy for the newspaper. They couldn't control the editorials, of course, but they could sort of put a slant on uh, the news articles uh, that uh, came out. So that was the first thing. Secondly, FDR realises the communication potential of radio. He's not the first radio president. Warren Harding 
And uh, Calvin Coolidge, Calvin Coolidge in particular, had uh, used the radio to their benefit, but none used it like FDR. Uh, FDR, many of FDR's major speeches were broadcast live on uh, national radio. And, of course, most famously were the so-called fireside chats, which he institutes to share his thoughts with the American people. Now, the fireside chats, there are only, depends how you count it, uh, there are only about 16 during the 1930s. So, you know, that's uh, about two to three a year. Uh, there are more in the war years, uh, but ultimately, depending on how you count it, I counted 31 in total. And he's in, uh, president for 12 years. Now, you know, work out the math, but it was their infrequency that gave them their punch. And people thought FDR had such a intimate way of delivering his uh, uh, his message that people would say, oh, he's come into our homes and... Uh, uh, you know, we know what the president of the United States is thinking. It's almost as if he's our neighbour. And the first one was the most impactful one. In the first one, very, very early in FDR's first term, he's enacted banking legislation to uh, try to save as many banks as possible. The only problem is that people are still taking their money out of banks and a lot of people are holding their money under the bed, so to speak, uh, because they don't trust the banks. So he goes on radio on the 12th of March uh, 1933. He's only been president for eight days. And he explains the banking crisis. He explains what needs to be done. And he says, the only way we're going to solve this is if you put your money back in the banks. It's up to you now. We've we've created the framework. And next day, it's fantastic. People are queuing up outside banks to put their money back in. The smaller banks in out-of-the-way places, a lot of them collapsed. They could not be saved. But most of the banks were saved. And at a time when uh, uh, when FDR took office, the outgoing Hoover administration assumed that at least one-third of all banks could never be reopened. And uh, really, uh, to the very small percentage, 10% approximately the trade but that uh, that fireside chat really established uh, the pattern of Roosevelt as a great communicator uh, he's not always as successful, of course, uh, uh, but uh, he uses the fireside chat sparingly uh, to share his thoughts on what needs to be done to combat the depression during the 1930s and to boost national morale during the war. A third element which is often forgotten in FDR's communication strategy, the newsreels are coming into their own. There's no television, of course, but uh, the newsreels, the talking newsreels, you know, late 1920s, by, the, by 1933, the newsreels are an essential part of any cinema programme. Uh, the studios who own a lot of the, the Hollywood studios that own a lot of the cinemas in the country are desperate to get people back in. They begin showing double bills and between the main A film and the B film, you have the newsreels. And FDR 
was a star of the newsreel. Uh, he appears in his first hundred days in more newsreel uh, than Herbert Hoover did in his four years in office. And the newsreels show FDR moving, uh, uh, taking decisions. Voice is, uh, uh, is part of the appeal. And uh, the FDR, FDR helped to make the newsreels uh, a vital source of information for the American people who went to the cinema. And uh, they, in turn, made him appear heroic. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The only person that holds a candle to him is Abraham Lincoln. Why do I think that FDR uh, was uh, deserving of the number one spot over uh, Abraham Lincoln? Lincoln was never tested in the arena of peace. Okay. Now, without wanting to skip us too far ahead right away, you've mentioned a couple of times um, 12 years, four terms. I'm sure a few listeners are, might be thinking, well, where do those four terms come from? Aren't they only allowed to do two? So what was happening there? What, what, was, um, what led to that? Well, in the original constitution, there was no term limit on the president. Uh, George Washington, the first president, effectively established a two-term convention when he retired at the end of his second term. Now, up to up until FDR, every president had observed that two-term convention. FDR in 1940 breaks that convention. Why does he break it? Well, there are two main reasons. Everyone will say the most important reason is that there's war in Europe. These are dark days indeed for Britain. During the party conventions of 1940, France fell. France fell during the Republican convention. Uh, and the, uh, FDR had a sense that uh, uh, continuity and experience were essential. He was wary of the Republicans who had a strong isolationist wing, non-interventionist wing in their party. And so that was one reason he he ran. Often underestimated or overlooked is the fact that he did not think that the New Deal and its legacy would be safe in any hands but his. Uh, He did not see, he hadn't been able to groom a successor, for want of a better term. Uh, He tried with several people, but uh, there was always some problem that limited their their potential. And so he, he, just as important as the foreign policy uh, concerns are the domestic policy concerns. And he's determined to to have a a liberal vice presidential candidate in place of the very conservative vice presidential running mate he had in his first two terms. And now he turns to grooming uh, a successor in the person of Henry Wallace, who's been his uh, Secretary of Agriculture for two terms. The party doesn't want Wallace. And Roosevelt sends a message to the Democratic Convention in Chicago that if Wallace isn't accepted, he will withdraw from the race. Now, this is almost 
purely a domestic politics driven decision uh so what i'm saying is uh, yes the war is very significant in fdr's decision but so were domestic considerations and the preservation of liberalism but it, by 1944 fdr is ill in fact he is desperately ill he should never have run but uh he decides to serve uh, to continue serving uh, because the war is not yet won and he feels that he alone can negotiate with uh, Soviet leader Joseph Stalin and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill a an effective post-war settlement. FDR doesn't know how ill he is, he suspects it, and I think that uh, had he lived longer, he would probably have relinquished the presidency. That, of course, he dies uh, into his, uh, weeks into his fourth term. Now, when uh, the war is over, FDR's opponents, domestic opponents, conservative Republicans, and it has to be said, conservative Democrats, are determined there will never be another uh, uh, president of such uh, longevity as FDR. And they approve a constitutional amendment uh, limiting the presidency to two terms to begin after President Harry S. Truman, FDR's successor, has completed his term. Truman could have run in 1952 under the terms, but chose not to. But the important thing is that uh, this had to be ratified by uh, the states, three quarters of the states. Now, state legislatures, they're not they're not, not, how can I put it, uh, certainly in the 1930s uh, and 1940s, uh, they're not at the forefront of progressive thought. Most of them are conservative-dominated, rural over-representation. And what happens is that the 22nd Amendment, limiting the president to two terms, is enacted by three-quarters of the states within uh, three years, which is remarkably quick. Uh, Only two states, Massachusetts and Oklahoma, actually rejected it. Why? I think Americans decided that even though they had wanted FDR in 1940 and 1944, uh, they were nervous about creating a a monarchical president, if they like, if you like. They wanted a Republican president who uh, would be limited in his time in office. And uh, that, that was the, uh, the outcome of it. Uh, paradoxically, of course, uh, of the presidents who followed, had the, there been a possibility of a third term, Dwight D. Eisenhower and Ronald Reagan almost certainly could have had a third term. Uh, had uh, uh, they been allowed one, both of them Republicans, so a bit of shooting in the foot there. Uh, or the other person who I guess might have uh, got a third term on the strengths of his economic policies, if not his moral stance, of course, was Bill Clinton. Okay, so to, so to return then to um, FDR's uh, sense of the presidency, perhaps you can look at him then in terms of the, the foreign policy and, and the sense of America on the world stage. How did he um, perceive his own role and America's role in, in global terms? Well, FDR was an internationalist. Uh, He had been a Wilsonian. He had supported Woodrow Wilson's uh, 
uh, efforts to uh, establish a League of Nations with American membership after the First World War. And uh, he believed that the United States had to play an active role in world affairs uh, because of the rise of the dictators. Hitler actually takes uh, power in Germany four weeks before FDR becomes president. And you have a growing number of autocracies who are dissatisfied with the Treaty of Versailles after, uh, which uh, brought, uh, which was negotiated after the uh, the Great War, and want to change it. <clears throat> and of course, uh, he sees uh, Germany rearming in violation of the Treaty of Versailles clauses. He sees Italy in 1935 invading Abyssinia and trying to build a colonial empire in Africa. And uh, he's worried about Japan, which uh, is looking to expand its uh, the basis of its economic power uh, by taking territory in mainland China and building up its navy in order to become the most significant force in the Pacific. The problem is for FDR in the 1930s, he's a leader without followers in foreign policy. The American public is heartily sick of international politics. They begin to believe that involvement in the Great War was a mistake. They don't want to have anything to do with the United Nations. And FDR's moderate efforts to push them, uh, one such effort was to get the United States to join the World Court, which was the United Nations legal agency to settle disputes. And even to join this non-military body was too far. In 1935, the Senate rejects his proposal and uh, he he's really beginning to get worried that uh, the United States will be perpetually on the fence. In the second turn, things begin to change. Uh, in many ways, the uh, dividing line is the failure of what is known as the Ludlow Amendment, proposed as a constitutional amendment by a Democrat, Representative Louis Ludlow of Indiana. And Ludlow's amendment decrees that the United States cannot go to war unless you have a national referendum to approve it. Completely crazy, of course. Uh, um, uh, even if it was done from the best ideals. <clears throat> and that is defeated. And from that point on, FDR becomes more, becomes bolder. In 1937, he uh, gives a speech in Chicago, the epicenter of isolationism, calling for the quarantining of the aggressors, saying that uh, the democratic nations have to rally together to against the aggression of uh, the autocrats. Uh, that is something of a lead balloon, but the next year the Munich crisis occurs and there's a shift in opinion. Slowly but steadily, FDR breaks down opposition but on one point, he knows he cannot cross the line. He cannot take the United States into war without it being attacked. 
uh, because he knows that that war will not have consensual support at home. And although he's been criticised for <clears throat> not giving Britain sufficient support, not doing uh, more to resist the dictators, it's Roosevelt being the fox rather than the lion, to use the Machiavellian term. He knows the limits. The, uh, FDR's got a very keen sense of limits uh, in most instances. And what he does is that he continually prods and pushes. His main goal is to repeal the neutrality legislation, which forbids the United States selling weapons to belligerent nations. And of course, this helps the uh, Nazi Germany and Italy, who have been building up their armaments and hurts those countries that have been late to rearm. So what we have then, the we go into 1940, the phony war, and then suddenly the world changes. Hitler's blitzkrieg knocks France out of the war, con- takes the whole of uh, West, almost the whole of West, of continental Western Europe. And from that point on, uh, FDR becomes bolder. He, he gets repeal of the neutrality legislation. American public opinion is swinging to the belief that the United States should do all within its power to defeat Hitler short of becoming involved in the war. Now, FDR is now playing again the game of the fox. He wants to be safe on third, as he said. He wants to win a third term. And then he would push because he he feared that if he's too forward, he could very well lose uh, re-election. As soon as he's safely <coughs> re-elected, uh, he pushes through the Lend-Lease uh, legislation, whereby, in his famous phrase, the United States will lease weaponry to Britain to keep it in the war. And then when the British are finished with the legislation, they'll either give it back, ha-ha, or uh, pay for it, which, of course, we never did. And that really keeps Britain fighting in the war in 1941. And then, of course, Hitler invades Russia, and FDR is determined to help the Soviet Union. Now, this is a big deal, Okay, The State Department is full of anti-communists who would have actually preferred Hitler to defeat the Soviet Union because they saw the Soviet Union as ultimately the greatest threat. So Roosevelt has to really crack down on his bureaucracy uh, to make sure that uh, uh, the weaponry uh, is being sent to the Soviet Union. Uh, he puts a few trusted lieutenants in charge of uh, lend-lease supplies to the Soviet Union, tells Stalin, ask for anything you want, we'll give it to you. And in in essence, keep helps to keep the Soviet Union in the war uh, when Hitler had been had assumed that it would be knocked out in about two months. So by the end of 1941, FDR has propped up Britain and the Soviet Union with weaponry, but that's all, and financial support, I should say. The British are saying, look, uh, we can't guarantee convoy safety across the North Atlantic. The Americans effectively arm uh, their merchant marine and put naval escorts 
to protect them. So uh, the, the United States is effectively in the, war, uh, in the war in the North Atlantic, but it's an undeclared war in late 1941. Surprisingly, it isn't in the Atlantic that the spark of war is lit. It's in the Far East, which FDR probably wouldn't pay sufficient attention to. It's significant that he delegated his Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, to do the main negotiating with the Japanese. That the, the longer the situation in the Pacific goes on, whereby the Americans are squeezing them economically, prohibiting oil uh, exports to Japan, that the, uh, Japan will progressively weaken. And they dis- side on this surprise attack on Pearl Harbor as a way to knock out the American Pacific Fleet and uh, to uh, get get into the war in order to uh, conquer vast swathes of East Asia. So clearly then um, his wartime leadership is um, very well remembered and and, and obviously um, was a hugely significant part of his presidency. But if we can return to your um, sort of uh, your your central argument, then um, you you write that he transformed the presidency from quote a rather small personalised institution into the driving force of national government. I wonder if you can, if we can hear from you then on his broader presidency and the legacy he left for his successors, both consciously and unconsciously. Okay, well, FDR made the presidency the central focus of American government. Uh, In the 100 days of 1933, he pushes and pushes legislation at Congress, and Congress enacts in FDR's first three months in office 15 major pieces of legislation. Now, this is unprecedented. Uh, uh, Congress is a deliberative body, uh, slow-moving, but suddenly there's this splurge of uh, New Deal legislation aimed at strengthening the banking system, helping farmers, uh, uh, dealing with unemployment, getting business back on its feet. And what emerges from this is that the president is now acknowledged as chief legislator. Now, the president has got no legislative power. Only Congress can enact. But what Roosevelt has done is established the president as program creator. You know, uh, so so the legislation goes to Congress with presidential messages. FDR uses all his uh, political influence to get uh, support for his measures. And Congress is in the situation by the end of the 100 days that it retains its fundamental constitutional powers, of course, but it looks to the president for legislative agenda leadership. So that, And that that is one of FDR's great legacies. From this point on, if we think about uh, presidents like L- Lyndon B. Johnson and the Great Society, Ronald Reagan and the conservative revival, even down to Joe Biden, uh, who's uh, suddenly had this splurge of legislative successes of late. You know, it's it, it, presidents are measured by their legislative leadership now. That's the first thing. The second thing is that uh, FDR lays the foundations of the welfare state in the 1930s and the warfare state in the 1940s. Uh, so, he builds up a huge federal bureaucracy. He can't do all this on his own. I mean, he's one man. There are only so many hours in the day. But he creates a 
uh, he creates a presidency uh, which is more than the president. It's now an executive bureaucracy. Uh, in 1939, uh, he finally gets legislation creating the executive office of the president and the uh, executive reorganization that flows from that uh, makes the presidency uh, not only the initiator of legislation, but also program implementer, program coordinator, and in effect, um, ensuring that uh, legislation as enacted is delivering what the president wants. So very important, the creation of uh, the executive presidency to manage the welfare state and to manage the uh, warfare state. So to wrap us up then, Ewan, I wonder if I could um, pose a broad one again. Having written so widely um, about presidents through history, can you give us a sense, in your view, of is there anyone who comes close to the transformative um, terms of FDR? Well, firstly, um, FDR's transformative significance is not thought of as a good thing by conservatives in the United States. There are frequent presidential polls in the United States of who the greatest president was, and they usually poll uh, historians, pundits, etc. And Abraham Lincoln is by far and away the most co- uh, common number one. George Washington also edges FDR. FDR, somehow or other, He's controversial. He was the lion and the fox. Was he trustworthy? Did he always tell the truth? Uh, Well, in my opinion, he got things done in a way that nobody else could have done. So uh, the answer to your question is, depends who you're asking. Okay, If you're asking me, the only person that holds a candle to him is Abraham Lincoln. Why do I think that FDR... Uh, with uh, deserving of the number one spot over uh, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln was never tested in the arena of peace. He's a great war president. He's killed just as the war is coming to an end. Uh, Would he have been able to manage the reconstruction of the South in a more skillful way than than his successor, Andrew Johnson, did? Well, we'll never know. In FDR's case, he is tested in the arena of economic depression, worst economic depression in American history, greatest foreign war in American history. He is a very active commander-in-chief. He keeps his military generals in line and prevents them from making quite significant strategic miscalculations. Uh, give you an example, uh, his top military men, generals and uh, admirals, wanted an invasion of France in 1943. It was premature, the likelihood of it coming off very uh, uh, very unsure. FDR wants a more circuitous route and he insists on uh, the generals bowing to his uh, authority as commander-in-chief. So, now this is a guy who doesn't uh, just uh, sit around waiting for his generals to tell him, we're going to do that, we're going to do this. He's actively involved in wartime decisions. The big question with FDR... And this is another what-if question, as uh, happens with Lincoln. He dies in in the early months of his fourth term. Had he lived, 
would he have been able to hold together the victorious Grand Alliance of the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom and uh, the United States into the peace? Could FDR, who was the linchpin of that alliance, who uh, worked very, very hard to gain Stalin's trust, uh, was going to use not uh, America's atomic monopoly to uh, browbeat Stalin in the uh, after the war, but use the carrot of economic aid. And uh, uh, he also believed that Stalin trusted him uh, insofar as Stalin was capable of trusting anyone, he comes close to trusting FDR. Now, had he lived, would there have been a Cold War in the way that we know it? Historians are divided. They say FDR was already beginning to lose trust in Stalin. I don't think that's true. The day before FDR dies, he sends his last cable to Winston Churchill, who's warning about uh, Stalin betraying the Yalta Accords and establishing a uh, single-party communist government in Poland. And FDR tells him, look, we've just got to hold Stalin's trust. We've got to be patient. We've got to ensure that uh, he has no cause to break with us. And if we can hold him, I'm sure that all our uh, difficulties and disagreements will iron out and we'll have a workable peace. Now, whether he could have fulfilled those words, we don't know. That was Ewan Morgan, FDR, Transforming the Presidency and Renewing America, is published by Bloomsbury and is out now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.